This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. The Reformers and Scripture. Those are the topics that are taken up in the new book, Reading Scripture with the Reformers, written by Timothy George, who has, since 1988, been the dean of the Beeson Divinity School, where he served as the founding dean and currently also teaches in the area of church history and doctrine. He serves as theological advisor for Christianity Today. He's on the editorial boards of journals including First Things, Ecclesiology, and Books and Culture. He's written many books, including Theology of the Reformers, that has been translated into several languages. He received both his Master of Divinity and Doctor of Theology degrees at the Harvard Divinity School. And Dr. Timothy George, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thank you so much, Dr. Moeller. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, I'm glad to be reunited with a dear friend by means of this interview. And I have to tell you, I really enjoyed reading the book, Reading Scripture with the Reformers. And as much as I know you, I simply just want to ask, why this book now? Well, you know, you write some books because you just want to and other books because you're asked to. I was asked to write this book as an introduction to the series Reformation Commentary on Scripture that InterVarsity Press is bringing out. That's a 28-volume series of exegetical extracts from the Reformers of the 16th century. So they wanted me to do something that would kind of put this in context. How did the Scripture become such an urgent issue in the Reformation? And that's what I was trying to do. Well, you certainly accomplished that, but you also accomplished a good deal more, I want to argue, in terms of writing the book, because you set the record straight on a number of issues, and one of the most important of these you established at the very onset. I'm reading from page 18 of your book. You wrote, The reformers of the 16th century shared with ancient Christian writers and the medieval scholastics who came before them a high regard for the inspiration and authority of the Bible. Dr. George, one of the things you do so effectively here is to demonstrate the scriptural consensus of the church by the time of the Reformation on the inspiration and authority of the scriptures. Yes, absolutely. We know the Reformers really saw themselves not as starting something brand new from scratch, but as uh, they were on an operation of retrieval. They wanted to go back to, first of all, the Bible, the earliest forms of Christianity in the apostolic and post-apostolic period, and bring those back to life again in a new, vibrant way, because they, in fact, had become obscured in the intervening millennium and more since the early church. That's what they were doing. And they built on this consensus, I think we could call it that, uh, that's already there, of course, in the earliest layers of Christianity, right through St. Augustine. And the idea that in the Bible we have the very words of God, uh, what we refer to as the inerrancy of Scripture. This was not a new idea either. Uh, it was not the most uh, urgently proclaimed idea in the 16th century because it wasn't under attack in the 16th century, the way it became after the Enlightenment. But they assumed all of this, and they were building on this rich heritage of biblical and patristic theology. Well, one of the reasons why that's so uh important for us in terms of the contemporary scene is that there have been those, especially those associated with more neo-Orthodox understandings of Scripture in the mid-20th century and beyond, who tried to argue that the Reformers specifically, and churchmen of, of the centuries before them, held to something less than what we would call the total inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. I'm familiar with that argument, but I think it's based on a pretty shoddy scholarship, actually. Uh, you can go back to St. Augustine. So much of what the Reformers were doing was a recapitulation of St. Augustine's ideas with some different nuances along the way. This is deep-rooted in what Augustine says in his exegesis of Scripture and how he talks about the Bible. The Bible was the divinely inspired Word of God. Uh, this was common uh, knowledge in the early church, and the Reformers are simply reiterating it in a new and different and challenging time. You cite historians such as J.N.D. Kelly, who wrote, It goes without saying that the fathers envisioned, uh, envisaged the whole of the Bible as inspired, or G.R. Evans, who said it was taken for granted by all students of Scripture in the Middle Ages that the text of the Bible was literally and directly inspired and as much as there was this consensus, you appear in your, your introductory uh, chapters in this book to be doing two things simultaneously, and, and frankly, I think doing them very well, and that is convincing us that this consensus did exist. And, and then at the same time, the Reformers were doing something new. As you say here, the Reformation set in motion a revolution in religious life, the effects of which are still being felt a half millennium later, 
And that had a great deal to do with differences in terms of how they understood the Scripture and its authority over against the uh, medieval schoolmen. Absolutely. Well, you know, the Reformers were faced with different challenges than the early church did. That's why they could build on the patristic consensus and yet reframe it in a different way. And essentially, that's what theology does. We don't we don't cook up new things as we go along, but it is important, and Karl Barth makes this point in a good way, to state again, as if for the first time, those ancient truths of Scripture and the, the Christian faith. And that's what the Reformers were doing. In their day, uh, scholasticism, had led the church away in some very unhelpful ways. One thing, by focusing on a certain kind of philosophy, largely Aristotelian, that led to a sort of distancing of the Bible from the people. Now, of course, the Scripture was there in the Middle Ages, and we shouldn't imagine that the Reformers are bringing it for the first time, but the Scriptures had become subordinated uh, to certain kinds of traditions in the Church, certain ways of understanding um, philosophy in the Church, and this is what the Reformers were very much in revolt against. Revolution, I use that word deliberately, it was really a revolutionary thing they were doing, and we're still reaping the benefits of that if we will listen to them. Well, one of the things you address uh, here in in terms of the the problem that is in the background uh, that the Reformers were trying to deal with in terms of of the role of Scripture, you point out not just the distancing of the Scripture from the people, but the distancing of Scripture from the Holy Spirit. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, You know, one of the things the Reformers did, and we maybe get to this later in our conversation, they emphasized the importance of preaching. Uh, Now, they didn't invent preaching. It was there. St. Francis preached. There were preachers. But what the Reformers did was to see preaching and put it in a different context. And that was so that the Bible would be, as Luther was fond of saying, viva vox, the living voice of God to the people. And of course, that was Uh, actually the operation of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the church that made the Bible come alive. So why did they give their time to the study of the Scriptures? It wasn't so they would become these erudite scholars and commentators in some kind of uh, abstract academic way. It was so that the Scriptures could become an instrument for renewal under the power of the Holy Spirit among the people of God. That's really what they were about. Now, you raised the question earlier in your book, and that is, why read the Reformers? And uh, to know you is to know you're ready with an answer to that question. How did you answer it in the book? I don't exactly remember how I answered it in the book, but I'll answer it to you right now. (laughs) Uh, Why uh, was the Bible so important to them? How did they uh, recover the Scriptures? For them, what this meant was that uh, the Bible again becomes uh, vital and essential to the spiritual life. Uh, What we all just assume almost take for granted, those of us who are evangelicals or even Protestants of any, and even now some Catholics, is that we read the Bible to, to be nourished spiritually. This, in a way, was a new phenomenon among the people in the 16th century, and the Reformers wanted the, to, us to listen to the Bible. It wanted us to hear God speaking through the Bible in a way that it would make a difference in our lives. This was, uh, I hate to use this word spirituality because it's so inflated today, this was really the the genesis of uh, evangelical spirituality. In terms of of why we should read the Reformers, uh, in the background to the great project of the commentary uh, that you've been so central in leading, and also in this book, you, you mentioned some things that we really need to think about as evangelicals. First of all, you talk about the heresy of contemporaneity, or as you say, in less theological terms, the imperialism of the present. That reminded me of C.S. Lewis talking about chronological snobbery. I think you're talking about yeah. the same thing. We, we tend to absolutize our times, and we rob ourselves by not listening to the past. Well, you know, we we are very uh, keen today on listening to every kind of voice imaginable out there, this one and that, but I'm not against that. I think we all have uh, important things to learn by listening to the voice of women, by listening to all kinds of uh, nationalities and ethnic groups and political and social groups. I'm not against that. But what we absolutely ignore very often is to listen to what God has been saying to the church through the ages. And that's the point I was getting at, and you're you're right to, to quote C.S. Lewis, I think he was making the very same point, that God was speaking and saying something to his people before we were even born, and it behooves us to listen in to that. 
to, as it were, uh, eavesdrop on those conversations. And that's what we're able to do when we study the history of exegesis. You talk about twin errors we might identify in terms of how Christians in general and evangelicals uh, often think about such things. You mentioned, on the one hand, primitivism, and on the other hand, presentism. Yeah. Uh, What do I mean by those terms? Primitivism. It's this idea that uh, all we need to do is go back and recover exactly uh, the primitive church, uh, the New Testament. Forget everything that's happened since then unto our own generation. And so we have these two poles, primitivism, the earliest, and presentism, that which is going on around us in our contemporary world. Well, in between those two poles, of course, there is a long lineage, a a history of how people have read Scripture, interpreted Scripture, and that's what I'm calling for, an engagement with uh, the tradition of listening to what God has been saying in His Word and by His Spirit to His people through the centuries. One of the things that marked the Reformers, in terms of uh, of our retrospect, looking back at them, is, is that they really did become uh, more faithful interpreters of Scripture. You talk about the superior exegesis uh, to which the Reformers aspired. Uh, superior to whom, and, and in what sense, and, and what kind of exegetical uh, then methodology that did they develop? Yeah, this is actually a, a term that I have taken from one of my great teachers, uh, Dr. David Steinmetz, who for many, many years taught at Duke University. I had the privilege of studying with him for a year in my own graduate work at Harvard. And he wrote an article, very influential article, called The Superiority of Pre-Critical Exegesis. And what he was doing there was essentially bringing a critique to the idea that that which is latest is automatically best. It was a critique of a kind of slavish following of what we call the historical critical method of studying the Bible in favor of listening to what God was saying to people long before our more recent theories came into vogue. Now, it's superior for one reason because these people are understanding the Bible not as kind of chopped up into little pieces or peeled back layer after layer after layer till there's nothing left, but rather they are trying to listen to Scripture as it was given as an authentic word from God with an overarching storyline, a coherent comprehensive biblical theology. Now, we have to say, of course, they didn't get it 100% right, and we are we are right to enter into discussion and be critical of them, but that intentionality of hearing the Bible as the voice of God from Genesis to Revelation and seeing what we like to call today the, the pattern of intra-textuality, uh, this was very much characteristic of the way the Bible was read in the early church, even to some extent in the medieval church, and certainly in the Reformation. And that's what the Dr. Steinmetz, I think, meant by talking. That's a superior way than what we think of as superior, bringing our own assumptions and presuppositions to the Bible, rather than allowing Scripture to speak to us directly. Reading your book, Reading Scripture with the Reformers, I was struck by the fact that so many conversations that take place at a certain era in church history come back again. And in one sense, uh, generations have to discover anew some of the things that were affirmed long ago. For instance, in in the second of the exegetical principles you delineate uh, for the Reformers, the first being an absolute confidence in the inspiration and authority of Scripture, the second is that the Bible is to be rightly read in light of the rule of faith, the regula fide. And uh, that's very, very similar to what evangelicals in our generation have been learning uh, over against uh, learning the grand storyline of the Bible or the, uh, the, the meta-narrative of Scripture. The Reformers did not apologize for having a certain understanding about the, the basic uh, fabric of the Christian faith as they read the Scripture. For example, the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, of course, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, and yet the Bible is Trinitarian from first to last. How do we know that? We know that because this is the purport of Scripture. This is where Scripture invariably, I would say inevitably, leads us if we listen to it aright. And the rule of faith, that's a kind of quaint term I know to a lot of evangelicals, it simply means that we want to follow the pattern that is already there, the pattern of Christian truth in the Bible itself, expressed, of course, in the Apostles' Creed, in the Nicene Creed, in these classic documents of the faith that cut across all of our confessional lines and ground us back once again in what God is saying to us in the Scripture. It's not adding anything to the Bible. I want to be sure to make that point. I'm not here claiming that alongside the Bible there is this extra thing, the rule of faith, uh, which we also need. No, I'm saying that the rule of faith is an accurate uh, summary of that which we find in the Scriptures itself. 
And when we come to the Bible, it behooves us to to listen and read along with those who stood closest to the apostles themselves, and in fact, to the apostles themselves in the in the words of Scripture. But that gets to another point that you raise, and uh, in in one sense, I, I think you're defending the reformers over against their their critics in the 16th century and beyond. For instance, to take a 20th century critic, Jacques Martin, uh, you uh, you defend Luther over against uh, his accusation that what Luther represented was, quote, the advent of the self, end quote. You point out that for the Reformers, Scripture was to be interpreted within the community of saints. Absolutely. Well, you know, one of the themes, I think you you very astutely pick up on this, that is kind of woven throughout this book because it's in the Reformers. Uh, I am dead set against the idea that interprets the Reformation as this kind of recrudescence of uh, individualism. The individual lone conscience standing before God. This is Hegel's idea of the Reformation, by the way, uh, and it's led a lot of people astray, both in theological liberalism, this is the gospel of liberalism essentially, but also, I have to say, on the more conservative side. So there's just Jesus and me, and uh, we forget about the fact that we are a part of a community of faith, and God has been speaking to his people. There's a corporate as well as a personal dimension always in the Christian faith. That's what the Reformers were about. Maritain, of course, is a Roman Catholic theologian, a Thomist theologian, and he has a kind of, let me say, prejudice against Luther, and I think he, uh, you see this on both of the Catholic and also the more liberal Protestant side of misinterpreting the Reformers in terms of a paradigm of individualism. Well, that's where you talk about the uh, the imperialist kind of presentism that's found on both the left and the right, uh, where we try to read figures to affirm our own worldview. Exactly. One of the things I delight in whenever I read something that uh, Timothy George has written is uh, how he just uh, peppers his writing with these uh, these wonderful little uh, anecdotes and other things that uh, are so well documented in terms of his research. Uh, as as much as I'd read all of this before, you know, Timothy, I tell you, I had not come across the phrase flugschriften, uh, these flying ah, writings. Yeah. That, yes. Uh, so the, the, the Reformation uh, d- took wing in many different ways, but one of them was, of course, as you make clear, on the, uh, the technology of the printing press. And these arguments yeah. uh, literally did go flying around Europe uh, as uh, the, these theological issues were the, the front-line, headline issues of debate. You know, the first book to be printed, of course, was the Bible by Gutenberg in in 1455, Uh, but soon all kinds of other writings also found their way into the printing press. And these Flugschriften, the flying writings, as they were called in German at the time, these were really broadsheets. These were almost like uh, posters, we would say today, just a few sheets, very often illustrated, by the way, with a woodcut. Uh, Sometimes it would be a sermon of Luther, sometimes it would be an exegesis of Scripture, a few passages or verses of Scripture. Scripture. Often it would be a kind of polemical thing, but these just took off and became, in a way, uh, the, the, the means by which the message of the Reformation connected to the people. Along with that, of course, there was, first and foremost, the translation of the Scripture itself. Uh, Luther's 1522 German New Testament uh, became a bestseller almost overnight. And in uh, 1534, he he gave the complete German Bible for the first time uh, to the people. And this is something that shaped not only his time, but really a whole culture of, of German Protestantism and of evangelicalism right down to our own time. I was looking at a very recent German encyclopedia. And uh, I was looking for another reason, but came across an article on Luther, and it credited Luther with establishing, with fixing the German language in the 16th century, that it was Luther's translation of the New Testament, the secular authority had, uh, had documented, was what actually fixed the language, such that when people wanted to know even how to spell a German word, the authoritative spelling ended up being that of Luther's New Testament. It's so true. In English, of course, we're familiar with the King James Version of the Bible, 1611, the authorized version it's called, uh, had a a somewhat similar impact on our language. But I would say Luther's Bible uh, had an even greater impact on solidifying the language, on also, uh, in a way, advancing the language, giving it a kind of lyricism. Uh, that comes to flower in Germanic studies in figures uh, like Goethe, who was certainly not a, a very good Lutheran or Protestant or even Christian, but who was able to build on the linguistic revolution that came out of Luther. At this point in the conversation, what's abundantly clear is that Timothy George is a very careful thinker and careful scholar 
who is seeking to put the Reformation and the Reformers in their historical context, and not just in order to get the story right, but in order for us to understand the importance of the Reformers for today. The antidote to the kind of chronological snobbery that C.S. Lewis warned us about is this kind of intelligent, careful, analytical, but especially respectful retrieval of history. Timothy, as I was reading your book, I came across so many familiar figures. When you see a book, the title of which is Reading Scripture with the Reformers, you think immediately of the magisterial reformers, Vingley, Luther, Calvin. But you bring in some lesser-known figures, including one that I did not know about before, and that is Argula von Grumbach. Her her story is too good uh, for, for you not to tell. Well, Argula von Grumbach, you can tell she's German by her name, uh, she was born uh, in Bavaria in in 1492 when Columbus sailed the ocean blue that same year. Uh, And uh, she grew up in a family that was wealthy enough to provide her with a copy of the Bible in German. So she was very unusual, not only for a woman, a girl, but for anybody in the 16th century. But she read this Bible. It had a great impact upon her. She grew up to embrace the Reformation. It's an amazing thing. Uh, she was a confidant of Andreas Oziander, the reformer of Nuremberg. She met with Luther when he was at the castle of Coburg. Uh, she corresponded with Melanchthon, with Martin Bootser, with all these kind of people. Remarkable woman. And I think what you're referring to in the book is where I tell the story of her defense of an 18-year-old student at the University of Ingolstadt who had been forced by torture uh, to recant his his faith uh, in in Jesus Christ and in the, in the Protestant message, she actually challenged the Ingolstadt theologians, the faculty of theology at the University of, of Ingolstadt, by appealing to the scriptures, both the Old and the New Testament, which remember she had read since she was a girl and now was able to enter into a somewhat sophisticated dialogue with these people who had PhDs in theology. Well, one of the things that shows is the power of the Bible on the laity. She was a woman. Uh, she was a, a lay person. She had no standing in the church, and yet the Word of God gave her a kind of authority and freedom uh, to speak truth into that uh, very convoluted kind of uh, situation. She responded to the faculty at the university by saying, I can find no word in the Bible about this Roman church. I'll be glad if you could show me what God (laughs) has said about the Roman church. And then she said, I love this. Uh, I hear nothing about any of you refuting a single article. Uh, Ah, but what a joy it is when the Spirit of God teaches us and gives us understanding, flitting from one text to the next, God be praised. That's just such a simple confidence in the Scripture. Absolutely. And I I think some people who think of the Reformation as a top-down movement, you've got the princes, you've got Luther and the great Protestants. No, the the Reformation was a bubble-up movement. Um, You you have the leadership in Luther and people like that, but it had an impact at every level of society, including people like Argula von Grumbach. We often discuss the era before the Reformation in terms of the shorthand, which is not accurate, but nonetheless is very popular. Uh, by referring to those uh, those centuries as the Dark Ages. And, of course, that goes back to Petrarch, who uh, identified mm-hmm. them that way. But Petrarch had a more important function, and that was pointing the Reformers, as well as others, back to the very sources of classical learning. And for the Church, that meant going back to the sources of Scripture and the earliest Church fathers. In one sense, uh, the Reformation was a recovery movement. It was. And Petrarch was interesting because one of, the, one of the things we forget about Petrarch is that, in a way, the modern study of history, of what we call history today, uh, began with Petrarch. What Petrarch said is that we can engage with even the ancient past. He went back to the Roman era, Cicero and people like that, and especially Augustine was so important to Petrarch. And he would have conversations with these people. Uh, he would write letters to them. They'd been dead for centuries and centuries. But there was a sense of contemporaneity in his approach, in his desire to recover and retrieve the ancient past and become, uh, make it a living force in his own life. And so he gave us this sense of uh, looking at history, of, of chronology, of time, of both understanding a continuity but also a distancing. So the, the word for the technical word for what I'm talking about that comes 
from Petrarch is contextualization. We try to place in context and see with perspective that which has come before us. And so uh, he's a very important figure, uh, often overlooked, uh, I think, in the particularly Protestant tellings of the story. The seal of the city of Geneva had, and uh, the Reformation in Geneva took as its motto, the words, post tenebras lux, after the darkness, light. Was that an accurate uh, motto uh, for the Reformers to take up there in Geneva? Well, I think, again, uh, what's what's, uh, happening in Geneva is this sense of the excitement that's breaking out in their midst. And there there was a kind of new shining, a greater clarity that came to force uh, with this revolution in preaching. Before the Reformation came to Geneva, I mean, sermons were occasionally attached to a mass or something like that, usually canned sermons printed beforehand, uh, didn't follow any particular theme. And now suddenly you have this... uh, exposition of the scripture verse by verse, chapter by chapter, that Calvin followed, following the model of Zwingli and Zurich before him. And so thousands of people are crowding into the Cathedral of Saint-Pierre to listen afresh to the Word of God. Now, when you compare that situation, spiritually speaking, to what went before, it it was light shining after the darkness. Uh, I'm not denying that there was new light in the 16th century, but that light was not... uh, anything that was not already to be found in the Scriptures and even in the earlier church. That's what the Reformers were building on. Well, and I think you point directly to what the Reformers claimed. They they were not claiming to be teaching a new thing, but rather to be teaching the Word and uh, and mm-hmm. finding in that Word the gospel that had been there all along. But in, in the context of the historical and the ecclesiological epoch, there is no doubt that there was light coming after centuries of darkness, and quite yeah. frankly, it was a matter of life and death. This was not some kind of dispassionate theological discussion. Absolutely right. We we think of theology uh, as kind of distant from real life. You know, it's almost, I'm not a theologian, people would say, meaning that they don't have time for these abstract ideas. No, theology was, was life. There was no separation between theology and spirituality, theology and real life, because we're dealing here with eternal matters. We're dealing with life and death, with time and eternity. We're dealing with things that have ultimate meaning. And so uh, the Reformers understood that, and they were blessed to live in an age that took seriously, uh, theology. One of the crucial chapters in your book is entitled The Erasmian Moment. Uh, How do you understand uh, Erasmus as a hinge figure in terms of the development of the Reformation? I'm chuckling at your question because, uh, you know, Erasmus is such an enigma. I mean, Luther had this wonderful uh, statement uh, that Erasmus is a slippery eel. Only Christ can catch him. And uh, it's true. When I, when, the more I read Erasmus, uh, not only is he the first public intellectual in the history of the West, he also is one of the slipperiest and most obfuscating and most kind of self-constructing um, people. Uh, and so the, uh, the, the, there's a lot of uh, suspicion one has when you read Erasmus. And, and, and so I, I give full weight to all of that. Uh, however, it has to be said that in spite of that, and even in the midst of that kind of uh, figure, uh, there also shines through in Erasmus' own life and work the glorious gospel of Christ, which he recovered by recovering the scriptures. And uh, that's why I talk about the Erasmian moment. Why Erasmus is important is he he did bring to the fore the text of the Bible, the first critical edition of the New Testament, which was published in Basel in 1516 by Erasmus, was the basis really for every single text of Scripture that we continue to use even to this day. And for that, we can be very thankful. Well, you include in this chapter on the Erasmian moment two statements amongst many others that certainly caught my eye kind of framing the situation. First is the old statement that came back from the early 16th century that uh, Erasmus laid the egg that Luther hatched. And and so uh, Luther's contemporaries understood that he did have some dependence upon Erasmus. That statement, Luther uh, uh, laid the egg that that Erasmus hatched, actually came from some Catholic opponents of both Luther and Erasmus uh, who recognized exactly what was going on there. When somebody told Erasmus that what they were saying up in Cologne, that he had laid the egg that Luther hatched, uh, he smiled and said, yes, but Luther produced different kinds of chickens. 
But you can tell, certainly as this chapter comes to an end, and, and uh, knowing uh, uh, of Erasmus in terms of, uh, of his biography, you know, he came under a great deal of fire at the end of his lifetime by the fact that he was not considered uh, sufficiently anti-Lutheran. And uh, that's why he that, wrote this, uh, th- this incredible work against Luther uh, in, in terms of the issue of the, of the will, uh, with, the, uh, with yeah, uh, Erasmus yeah. defending the idea of, of uh, free will. But I had not seen before, I did not remember at least, uh, the statement from Erasmus that I think quintessentially describes his character when he said, quote, let others court martyrdom. I don't consider myself worthy of this distinction, end quote. Absolutely. Uh, isn't, that, isn't that telling? <laughs> you know? uh, the, and so there's a sense in which there's something always a little bit academic in the bad sense of that word going on with Erasmus. Uh, nothing suited him better than a nice bed and a warm uh, dinner by a fireplace. And uh, don't don't call me to the stake. Don't ask me to be martyred. How different from Luther at the Diet of Worms. Here I stand, so help me God, I can do no other. Those are not Erasmian words. Now, this uh, great divide that you refer to, the debate on the freedom of the will, on the bondage of the will, 1524, 1525, this was a watershed in the Reformation, of course. And it, what Erasmus was proposing there uh, was really uh, not a full appreciation of the amazing grace of God. It was a way to hedge his bets. It was a way to cut uh, and and uh, backtrack. And so in that way, I think we have to follow Luther and not Erasmus on that issue. Now, when it comes to Scripture and tradition, jumping from Erasmus to the Reformers themselves, uh, you point out very carefully that there was a battle over the tradition, uh, it's so that the Reformers did not ignore the tradition. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, after the Scripture, the, the second most quoted source in the Institutes of Calvin is, uh, is Augustine, and after, uh, mm-hmm. after that, Bernard of Clairvaux. So, I mean, there's this, there, there's this war over, the, 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 you might say, the, the quest for the historical Augustine. And uh, then you have, of course, the quest for the historical Paul in terms of uh, uh, an anachronistic way of looking at it. But, but what you point out is that sola scriptura was that for which the Reformers were willing to die, but that mm-hmm. did not mean that they had no concern whatsoever for the, the tradition of the church. It's a very naive misreading of the Reformers to say that. The word I've used, which I think I learned from David Steinmetz, is nuda scriptura. Uh, the, the, the Bible uh, alone, sola scriptura, the Bible above everything else, the Bible to which everything else must be subjected and critiqued, that was the view of the Reformers. So we take all of these traditions, including all of the confessions and creeds of the Church, as exalted and wonderful as they may be, and we do not give them a kind of authority alongside the Bible, much less above the Bible, but we subject them to the Bible. That's what sola scriptura means. But clearly this was done by the Reformers in conversation with the ongoing tradition of the Church, as you point out. Bernard, Augustine, uh, they chose their fathers. Not everything was of equal value, but they were clearly in conversation with this great tradition of Christian exegesis and bringing it up uh, back to life again in a time when it had been obscured. So uh, I think when we think about Scripture and tradition, uh, we need to move uh, earlier than some of these more post-Tridentine, that's the Council of Trent, and post-Enlightenment distinctions that we make. And, and that's what I was trying to do in this chapter in the book, is actually look at how the Reformers treated the tradition of the Church vis-a-vis their confidence in the soul and sufficient authority of the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures. Well, this whole idea of sola scriptura, you make very clear, really was rigorously applied by the Reformers. They, they, they were willing to let good and kindred go, so to speak, theologically speaking, mm-hmm. uh, in order to base everything upon the Scripture. And you quote from the statement made by the Reformers at the, the Diet of Spare in 1529, there is, we affirm, no sure preaching or doctrine, but that which abides by the Word of God. And that concludes... Whosoever builds and abides on this foundation shall stand against all the gates of hell, while all merely human additions and vanity set up against it must fall before the presence of God. That's a quintessential statement. 
that's a very Protestant statement. The Diet of Speyer, of course, was where essentially the Lutheran princes of Germany said to the Emperor Charles V, uh, we take our stand on the scriptures, on the word of God. And that was a big, big dividing point in the Reformation. It still is today. Uh, you know, I, as you know, I've been involved with discussions with Roman Catholics and so forth. I think we have a lot in common. But there are still some very fundamental differences, and uh, this is one of them. Uh, we cannot accept later traditions that have no grounding and no clear, evident authority in the written Word of God as uh, binding upon the church and the conscience. That we cannot do, no matter which magisterial authority may approve of it. You mentioned Luther himself, and uh, if any one figure predominates on the horizon of your book, it is Martin Luther. But uh, you make very clear that Luther was, first and foremost, a rigorous exegete and preacher of the Word of God. Absolutely. I mean, we, we, we think of Luther often as a great theologian. He was. Uh, we think of him as a terrific uh, pastor and preacher. He was. Uh, we think of him as a polemicist, and he certainly was that. He could say some very sharp things that we may not want to repeat in his full voice. But nonetheless, uh, at his core, Luther was a student of Scripture. Uh, and he never forgot the fact that in 1512 he had been appointed as a doctor of the Scripture. He never renounced his doctoral degree because he said this gave him a kind of standing to teach and preach the Word of God to the church. He, he was a monk. He gave up his monastic vows. He married a runaway nun, Katie Van Bora, but he kept coming back to the fact that he had been appointed ordained and set apart as a teacher of the Word of God. That's why I think Luther is so important for us today. I want to make a confession on your your program here that I've never said before publicly. You know, uh, I love Luther and I love Calvin, and I um, probably would say even now I'm closer to Calvin than to Luther on most things, but as I have gotten older and read more of both of them, I find myself drawn more and more ineluctably back to Back to Luther, because I think Luther was the one great genius of the Reformation. Calvin and others certainly built upon and extended and in some way solidified his views. But we that's why, uh, if anything, you're right to say I, I tilt my head uh, to Luther in this book more than anybody else. I think we probably have more to learn from him than anybody else. Well, and of course, the context is different. The personalities were hugely different. I often tell my students that I would have loved to have studied with Calvin, but I would have wanted to have lived with Luther. Yes, that's well put. Yeah, uh, just, just uh, because of the the freeness of his uh, uh, of his conversation. I mean, we don't have Calvin's table talk. It, that that wasn't his personality. Yeah. But with Luther, he probably never had an unarticulated thought, and it, and, and then that's he had true. he had students around him to write things down. Uh, to talk about exactly. three words for us uh, as related to Luther and, and what you call Lutheran ways, and that is oratio and meditatio and tendentio. Yep. Uh, these were Luther's preferred terms on how one reads the Bible. Prayer, oratio, uh, meditatio, meditation, and tentatio, temptation. Now, the first two are not particularly unusual. They're there in the medieval tradition that we come to the Bible on our knees, as it were, in prayer. And we should always read the Bible with our hearts open to heaven above, seeking the wisdom and illumination of the Holy Spirit. So prayer is essential. Uh, and then the whole question of meditation. Uh, this literally means, you know, in Hebrew, like a, a, a cow chewing the cud over and over again, digesting, inwardly uh, uh, consuming the Word of God. Your, wor the, your Word was found, and I did eat them, says Ezekiel. That's what meditation is. And for Luther, meditation also had the idea of saying it out loud. It wasn't simply enough to be back there alone by yourself in the study, uh, communing with the various spirit uh, of scholarship. No, speak the Scripture. Say it out loud. Repeat it in prayer, on your knees, as well as before the people of God. But then the thing that really Luther brings to the study of the Bible that is in some ways distinctive, if not unique, is this emphasis on tentatio, temptation. That uh, the German word, of course, is anfechtungen. This comes from the uh, word for fencing in Germany. A fechten is a, a, a person who engages in the sport of fencing, which, as you know, uh, can be a very dangerous sort of thing. You can lose your life uh, if you're not very careful. 
And and so there is this sense that uh, you do exegesis of the Scripture not only on your knees, but you also do it in the sense uh, uh, at your risk. There is something very risky and dangerous and life-threatening when we expose ourselves to the powerful Word of God, which kills as well as makes alive, as Jeremiah says. Well, this tentatio is, is exactly what I think uh, ought to mark far more evangelical pulpits uh, than uh, than I think it probably does, and and that is this this uh, this anxiety lest we get it wrong, uh, yeah, lest we fail in the task of preaching, and, and lest we preach anything other than the true gospel from the true Word of God. Just very quickly, I have to ask you, what did Calvin then contribute uh, to the Reformation tradition in terms of the understanding of, of Scripture and its interpretation? Well, Calvin, I've already confessed I love Luther a little more than Calvin, but let me say Calvin was a better exegete than Luther. I mean by that he was a more careful student of the language of Scripture, of the context, the historical context of Scripture. He learned more from Petrarch, to go back to that earlier comment, than Luther did. And so if you really want to read uh, magisterial commentaries on Scripture, read Calvin's commentaries. Uh, They are still worth reading today. In fact, they far outshine so many of the contemporary commentaries that are there, uh, because he wants to engage us with the, the, the meaning and the intention of the biblical writer, and he does that in a very sophisticated and yet engaging way. Uh, You know, Calvin's commentaries, in a way, were meant to be kind of the spelling out of what become his great uh, magisterial statement of theology in the Institutes of the Christian Religion. And it's really important, if you read Calvin, to read Calvin with bifocals. Read the Institutes, but also alongside that, in stereo, to change my metaphor, read the commentaries, because they'll give you a whole different slant on what Calvin is engaging with in Scripture. You know, to be in Geneva, as you have been many times and as I've been, you see exactly what you portray in this book. Calvin went into his study, he studied and studied and studied, and then he just walked that short walk to the pulpit and preached. Absolutely. It's a picture of the kind of monomaniacal, absolute focus upon (laughs) preaching that made the Reformation what it was. And, you know, he did that without a note. He, As you say, you know, he lived just a few feet away from the Cathedral of Saint-Pierre. He would walk into the pulpit without a note, usually with his Hebrew Bible or his Greek New Testament with him, and he would simply preach extemporaneously, we would say, without referring to any notes. But, of course, he had been immersing himself in the text of Scripture, in the language of Scripture, in the thought forms of the biblical writer— so that when he went into that pulpit, uh, he opened his mouth, and there gushed forth this powerful articulation of the Word of God. Now, how then do we have all of these sermons by Calvin if he did, never had a manuscript? Because there was a company of strangers, they were called. These were mainly French refugees that had fled to Geneva during the wars of religion. They sat on the front row, and they they co- copied down. They, um, they took down, word for word, as best they could, what Calvin was saying. And so that is why we have these transcriptions of Calvin's sermons. He later would correct these, they would be published. But we still have to this day, uh, it's remarkable to think about it, we still have sermons of Calvin that have never been critically edited yet. There's a process to bring them into, into new critical editions. But that was the power of the preaching of the Word of God. Uh, now, I'm not saying that's the only way you can do it. You know, uh, people use manuscripts. I'm not getting into that debate. But what was unusual about Calvin was what you just have to say, the anointing power of the Holy Spirit on a person who was so saturated and soaked with the text of Scripture. Now, you also deal uh, at least uh, to some degree with uh, with the Reformation in Zurich and thus with Zwingli. But what about the Anabaptists? What did they contribute to this discussion? I wish they contributed more, Uh, and I do have a little bit about the Anabaptists in this book because I think they're worthy of our attention. The problem, of course, in writing a book on the Anabaptists and biblical commentaries is they didn't write many. They didn't have time to. They were being harassed and hunted down. We have a few. Hans Dink 
gave us a commentary on the book of Micah, for example. Often enough, the uh, Anabaptist exegesis of Scripture comes in different forms. For example, when they were brought before the magistrates on trial for their life, uh, many of them, of course, were martyred in the 16th century. They would face an inquisitor who would ask them about uh, this or that, about their faith. And very often, the Anabaptists would respond to the person who was inquisiting them with great uh, learning from the Bible, quoting the Scripture, and giving exegesis sometimes of the Scripture, even to confound their questioner. Well, that shows that the Bible had a very important role for the Anabaptists. But unfortunately, uh, they lived in a time when they were didn't have the luxury uh, that the mainline reformers did to write down their comments and produce very many of the commentaries on Scripture. So uh, the Anabaptists, I think we learn more from their example, from the way in which the Bible informed how they lived in the world, how they engaged with the culture in the world. It was a countercultural movement. And I think in our age, more and more Christianity is called to become a countercultural movement. So we have a lot to learn from the Anabaptists, but I wish we had more commentaries from them. Well, learning from all the Reformers as you have drawn them together, you serve as general editor of the Reformation Commentary on Scripture released by University Press. Just tell us how all of this culminates in, in that project. Well, some of your listeners will know, I'm sure, about the ancient Christian commentary on Scripture, of which the general editor was our friend uh, Thomas Oden. Twenty-eight volumes they produce has now come to a completion. Well, the Reformation commentary on Scripture is a sequel to the ancient Christian commentary on Scripture. We are trying to do for the 16th century exactly what those wonderful scholars did for the early church. We take the entire Bible in canonical order, and we are going through book by book the entire Scripture, reading alongside the, the Reformers. And so we, we've divided the, the commentary into 28 volumes. Three have been published so far, and we look forward to others coming out. And the purpose of this is really to encourage and be a resource for preachers and teachers of the Word of God. It's not for scholars who simply want to study the footnotes. They don't need such a thing. But we want to put in the hands of pastors and teachers and preachers of Scripture a resource that will enable them to enter fully into the call of God on their life to proclaim the the precious Word of God. Timothy George, you are ever my dear friend and teacher. Thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. My great pleasure, Al. God bless you. For far too long, evangelical Christians in particular, as a subspecies of, of, of those who are identified as Christians around the world, have suffered from a kind of almost intentional historical amnesia. We come to understand not only are we then robbing ourselves of so much wisdom from the past, but we are also committing that sin that Timothy George describes as imperialistic presentism. We're acting as if the present is all that matters. And that, of course, is an insult not only to the 20 centuries of the church that came before us, but to the very understanding of what it means to get up today and to teach and preach the unchanging gospel from God's eternal word. This does require careful attention to the sources, the most important of the sources, of course, being Scripture itself. I can still remember that day over 30 years ago when I first sat in a classroom and was confronted with Professor Timothy George. I can still remember it was a Tuesday afternoon, and I was a 20-year-old newly minted seminarian, and uh, this Harvard-educated bearded professor got up, and I can still remember the very first words he said. I think of all the teachers I've ever had who've had a great influence on my life, only Timothy George's original words have stuck in my mind over three decades. He looked at us as seminary students gathered in a large classroom, and he said, Hello, my name is Timothy George. I teach church history. And my task is to convince you that there was someone between your grandmother and Jesus, and it matters. And, of course, it does matter. And I can still remember how his lectures mattered. And it was wonderful to have my dear friend and teacher as my conversation partner in this edition of Thinking in Public, and particularly because if there's any one thing that distinguishes Timothy George Amongst his many distinctions, it is his very careful scholarship and his affection for the tradition of the church and the reformers, but most importantly, for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. There were several things that became very clear in this conversation and certainly become very clear when you read Timothy George's new book, Reading Scripture with the Reformers. The first is the affirmation of Scripture that is absolutely foundational to the Reformation and to the Christian faith. Without any hesitation or qualification, the Reformers affirmed that the Bible is the Word of God. 
They had such a confidence in the Word of God that they based their lives and their theologies, their doctrine and their teaching upon it, their communities of faith, their churches, and of course they were willing, even at the point of the sword, to depend upon nothing else than their confidence in Christ and in the absolute truthfulness and the inspiration of the Word of God. One of the things that Timothy George helps us to understand is that that distinction between sola scriptura and scriptura nuda. That is to say, the Reformers staked their lives and their doctrine, their preaching and their teaching upon the Scripture alone as the final authority, but they understood that they were not the first readers of Scripture. They also understood that they were not, in any sense, the first faithful readers of Scripture. What they wanted to do was to connect the church to that line of faithful teaching. And, of course, this led to a good many historical and exegetical arguments, and that's what makes this kind of careful scholarship so interesting and so productive for us today. The affirmation of sola scriptura is absolutely necessary in every generation if the church is going to hold fast to the gospel. But it is also certainly important for evangelicals that we need to be careful that we do not turn ourselves into presentist individualists who simply listen to ourselves and to those around us and not to those who have been faithful teachers throughout the history of the church. The second thing we learn in terms of the understanding of the Reformers and Scripture and their exegesis of Scripture, how we read the Scripture with them, is their careful exegesis. They gave their lives and dedicated their energies to the faithful interpretation of Scripture, knowing that it is a science and it is an art, and it requires the most careful, diligent study. And so they gave themselves to the study of Scripture. They wanted to understand what the Scripture says. And in a day in which this kind of interpretive discussion was itself often a matter of life and death. They were willing to make very clear their determination to allow the Scriptures to speak and to seek to hear the Scriptures as God Himself speaks through His Word. Third, faithful doctrine. They understood that God, in His mercy to His church, has revealed those truths that we definitely must know if there is to be salvation and spiritual health, confidence for this life and for the life to come. Lastly, there was this affirmation of preaching. They were a company of preachers. And that's one of the things that makes reading the Reformers so helpful to us, because unlike reading from some other eras of church history, these were not dispassionate academics. And I love the way Timothy George said that, in the worst sense of the word. They were instead active churchmen, and more than that, they were preachers. They were preachers of the Word of God. And so as they engaged the biblical text, as they read it, as they sought to understand it and to interpret it, as they sought to apply it in their preaching, it was the living, breathing Word of God that animated their preaching, and their preaching was undertaken with such confidence that in the Reformation formula, the Spirit always accompanies the Word, and as the Word is rightly preached, God speaks alive to the congregation through the preaching, the faithful preaching of His living Word. This is the kind of conversation that could have gone in so many different directions and could have gone for so many hours. To talk about reading Scripture with the Reformers is to open up what truly is a a life's dedication of, of time and effort to try to understand all the riches that we would gain thereby. But the reality is that a book like this is written for preachers. One of the most important aspects of this new book by Timothy George is that even though it is written by an academic, it's written by one of the world's most capable theologians. It's written for preachers to be able to take up. And as I said, immediately upon my reading of this book, if the preacher has the slightest amount of homiletical testosterone, he's going to be absolutely committed to go to the pulpit with a new energy and dedication upon reading this book. Many thanks again to my guest, Professor Timothy George, for thinking with me today. Before I close, I want to make sure you know about the first annual Expositor Summit, a conference taking place on the campus of Southern Seminary dedicated to the very task about which we've just been speaking, the preaching of the Word of God. It's going to be held October 30 through 31 of 2012. The theme of this conference is preaching in a post-everything world. Please join John MacArthur, Alistair Begg, and me for this important conference. We look forward to seeing you there. For more information, visit sbts.edu. Thanks for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.